The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. Mowage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Well, now I want to say stuff like, as you wish, or what else? Inconceivable. When it comes to marriage, we could all use a few laughs, couldn't we? There's some photos uh, up behind me here. You're going to see my own wedding. That's right. I was 13 years old. <laughs> and the second photo there will show you that my groomsmen were wearing tuxedo shorts and black vans. So we were very cool, way ahead of our time. The next picture you'll see see one of my favorite weddings I got to officiate. It was at a river rafting camp for a couple, and it was very casual. They got married right next to the river. It was so fun. One of the best things I get to do as a pastor is to officiate weddings, is to meet with couples, to talk with them about their upcoming marriage. I love it. Even if there are largely strangers that I don't know, I will still cry in their weddings. The sad thing, though, is that for so many couples, the wedding is the pinnacle of the marriage. That slowly after that marriage, things, or that their wedding, things just slowly slide, and the elation of that day just becomes a distant memory. And those who do say, who stay married, for many of them, their marriage is miserable. So contrary to popular belief, God actually instituted marriage for the welfare and, yes, the happiness of people. So our question today is, marriage an outdated institution? Now before we dive in, I have a few public service announcements. Number one, if you are not married here this morning, for various reasons, I want to address you. Perhaps you are widowed. And my heart goes out to you. My parents have been married for 57 years, and I've watched my mom change her role as spouse to caretaker full-time, and it breaks my heart. Some of you in this uh, church this morning are happily single, and you don't want to hear anything whatsoever about this, (laughs) because it's going to ruin your life. It's okay. There are so many things here this morning that you will learn. There's so many relationship Dynamics that apply, not just through marriage. Some of you here this morning are frustratedly single. And for you, I want to encourage you to take notes and to to get ready for this potential wedding that you may see one day. The second public service announcement is to those of you who are or have been divorced. I am not here to bash you this morning. You're going to hear from today's passage, quote, end quote, I hate divorce. Well, I bet you do too. And I had a conversation with a friend a couple days ago who went through it recently, not knowing I was teaching from this very, very passage, and she used those exact words. 
broken, broken, broken. So please don't cringe when you hear those words. This does not say, I hate you. Number three, some divorces are absolutely justified. Now, Malachi's passage today is going to talk about unjustified divorce, so this does not apply to all marriages. Now, even if you're in a situation or have been in a situation where, as a married person, you are that offending party and 100% of it is on you, I'm still not here to bash you. Welcome to Club Sinner. There was always room on the table for forgiveness, reconciliation. Number four, and the final public service announcement. If you are a man who uses scripture and extracts specific verses and proof texts away to justify your right to lord your power over your wife, you are not going to like this message. <laughs> in the church, in church leadership, and in marriages, there are different points of view that Christians have. Some Christians are egalitarians in their view, which says that men and women can hold any position within the church, church leadership, and in the marriage, it's completely equal, and each of them can hold whatever role they want. Some folks are complementarians, where they say, yes, we are of equal importance, yet each of us has a different role. And in the church, there's a hierarchy, and within the marriage, there is a hierarchy. I have no problem with either of those stances. The problem I have was, is with the third category, the chauvinists. This includes, very sadly, many male pastors who view with their big mouths and their big egos that God has ordained their misogyny. And there are so many awful stories of churches across our country where even though the male has been unfaithful, has been abusive, that if this woman decides to leave the marriage, it is on her, it is her fault, and that she is blamed and even shunned in those situations. That is disgusting. That is reprehensible, and it is often predatory. It has no place in the kingdom of God. Now let's look at our passage. <laughs> Malachi chapter 2. If you have one of these Bibles in the chairs in front of you, we're looking at page 794. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And they're about 100 years removed from their return from exile. So they were exiled because of bad behavior, and now they've had the opportunity to return. Some of them have returned from exile, yet same old, same old, what do you know? They're up to the same old antics, turning their backs on God. In chapter 1 that Pastor Steve covered a couple weeks ago, he first goes after the priests, yours truly, who are doing all sorts of wrong, including offering diseased animals as their sacrifice. They're supposed to be offering animals without blemish. And here they are offering, well, we're not going to eat this anyway. We'll just give this to God. And God says, you are dishonoring me by doing this. You're cheating me. And he says, and believe it or not, if you were here last week, you heard this, that if you bring those animals, if you continue to bring those animals as your offering, I will take 
the dung from those animals, and I will smear it on your face. It's at this point that Malachi addresses everybody. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Are we not all children of the same father? Are we not all created by the same God? Then why do we betray each other, violating the covenant of our ancestors? Malachi looks at his fellow Israelites and says, You guys, we are God's chosen. He has used us for years and years and years and has spoiled us and has blessed us. And here we sit, the chief offenders. This is terrible behavior. We cannot do this. Verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. And here's where he gets really specific. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. May the Lord cut off from the nation of Israel every last man who has done this and yet brings an offering to the Lord of heaven's armies. Marriage problem number one in your note sheet. The men are marrying outside Israel. They're marrying outside of Israel against God's directive in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now to be clear here, the violation is not how dare they marry outside a certain race or a certain ethnicity. It is the fact that they are marrying people who are worshiping pagan gods. Continuing with verse 13. Here's another thing that you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you have been unfaithful to her. Though she remained faith of your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with his wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So, guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife. Marriage number, problem number two in your notes unfounded divorce. These men are divorcing their wives just to entertain their lust and presumably to marry said pagan women. And their wives have been faithful spouses. They have been with them from, since day one and now they're being set up and tossed aside. And financially, they are in a world of hurt. It is not 2023 when both individuals in a couple have the opportunity to have these college degrees and tragically, if they have to go their separate ways, well, she can go use her business degree and go do this. It's not the case. These women are being left high and dry. And Malachi says, and here you sit, boo-hoo, why won't God accept our offerings? And he says, I don't care. I don't care how much you are giving. You cannot buy God's approval. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that this is a common story. It's just the cycle of stories that goes on over and over again. The nation of Israel continues to be unfaithful to God. He gives them a little bit of space. 
They go their own direction. They stumble. They fall. They come back to God. God, please help us out. God intervenes, even though he doesn't have to, and he restores them. And what do they do the next generation? The same thing over and over again. Continue to betray God. And God takes this personally. God takes this as an offense, and we know it in different kinds of language. So number one, God uses this parent-child relationship to help us understand that he is deeply at loss, that these people, his children, his daughters in this case specifically, have been left high and dry. Now, not one person in this room, if you had an adult child who was married and then was treated awfully, was divorced, was cheated on, you name it, wouldn't be furious at this person that they married. Am I right? The second way that God takes us personally is if God himself is the betrayed lover. The very first words of Malachi in verse 2 of chapter 1, I have always loved you. God is depressed. God is sad. God has been the perfect spouse. He has given them so much. He has protected them. He has been faithful for years and years. And what do they do? Oh, look at that. Israel has a roving eye. What about, what about them? And the moment when Israel turns and worships the pagan god, it's the consummation of their rejection of the real God. I don't have any space specifically in today's uh, note sheet for the next section, but God has given us four reasons to have marriage, why marriage exists. So you can write this down and you're welcome to. The first reason is for companionship. Purpose number one. Genesis chapter 2 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. We are designed for relationship on this planet. Now we'll, we'll cover that word helper a little bit later. The second purpose of marriage is mission. We have a task. We have work to do. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The man and the woman together have a task. They have work to do. God has given them the job of stewarding planet earth. Reason number three. It is to bring glory to himself. When you and I take the best qualities of masculinity, combine them with the best qualities of femininity, and they are working in harmony, that reflects the character of God. The fourth reason God gave us marriage is because it mirrors his love for us. New Testament uses the terminology that God, or that Jesus is our bridegroom, that the church is his bride, and that even those in this room today without an incredible marriage will one day understand and know the joy, 
the intimacy and the freedom that comes from such a deep relationship. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. When we reach eternity, then it'll be, oh. So is marriage an outdated institution? The answer, no. A perfect marriage reflects the sacred relationship between God and humanity. A perfect marriage reflects the sacred relationship between God and humanity. Now, these are Malachi's last words. Again, it's the last book in the Old Testament. And God is going quiet for 400 years. God is about to give his people the silent treatment. God has said, we need a break. And then we're going to hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 400 years later. Now, we could camp out this morning on this specific passage in Malachi and others. Justin's going to continue this next week to go into further details about um, Israel's unfaithfulness. But we're going to take this opportunity today to expound on marriage. And it's going to go kind of get more seminar than sermon this morning. So bear with me. But again, this is applicable to everybody because this has so much that will benefit all of your relationships, friendships, etc. So this mirror, the material that you're going to hear today is kind of a, a flyover that I use when I meet with couples before they get married. It's a, a four-week class, so we could spend the next five or six hours here, or you could take my class for 1995. <laughs> it does come with a set of free steak knives, so just kidding, but I, I, I do love this class, so if anybody would like to, to connect with me, I would love to... Um, talk with you afterwards. You're going to see a, a picture on the screen here, and this is a picture of my garden. <laughs> I know, and this does not happen by accident. <laughs> and after I built this, this garden, this box, you know, a lot of work is required to go into it. After you plant the seed, you expect these tomatoes to show up, but funny thing is, if you don't do anything, if you don't, you know, Pull weeds, if you don't water it, you know, this is what you get. You know, the same thing is true for our marriages. It's like we put so much money into that wedding, right? We tell this person, I love you, and, and I'll let you know if that changes. And then years later, marriage looks like that garden. Why would we expect that our marriages wouldn't require a significant amount of work? You and I have to cultivate a great marriage. And you and I love, love, romance, right? All right every male in this room will deny it, but you love those movies, those rom-coms. Come on. If you're shaking your head, you're not telling the truth. We love the falling in love story. We love to see this couple come together. We love to hear how our friends got engaged in their great story. And yet, Divorce.com says that 40 to 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Second marriages, 60%. Third marriages, 73%. This person that you love the absolute most 
and couldn't spend a waking moment away from her, years later becomes the person you most despise on the planet. How does that happen? In all the weddings that I've officiated, not once when a couple writes their own vows have I ever read something like, well, honey, I'm hoping for a good 10 years. And after that, we'll kind of see how things are at that point. But as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised because we are sinners and we take that into our marriage. And Satan is at work and prowls like a roaring lion. And our culture pushes us apart every single day. So we have to push back in. I have five specific takeaways this morning for you. They are available on your note sheet. I did not number them one through five. But you can find us. You got this. Number one, first takeaway. Couples need to know that they are marrying a family. Couples need to know that they're marrying a family. Your spouse has siblings. Your spouse has parents. And sometimes crazy cousin Eddie is there as well. I have a crazy uncle Ed myself. Love him. But there are some strange dynamics in that wedding or in that marriage and in that family that you just can't avoid. But the second part, and this is maybe even more critical, is that even if, you know, God forbid, those parents, those siblings had all passed away, or they live halfway around the world, your spouse is still a product of that family. They grew up in that environment, the way that the parents spoke to each other, the way that they displayed affection, the way that they used money, the way that power was exercised in the household. They saw who, who did the chores, who cooked, who cleaned, who paid the bills, who worked. And when you come into the marriage relationship, that is your baseline, right? And some of these things are, are subconscious and some of them are conscious. So you may know these things or these things may not appear a couple years into your marriage. Where five years in, and, and this is very rare that I don't know any couple that talks in detail about how they're going to parent five, ten years before they have kids. And then all these things start coming out of your mouth. Like, where did that come from? Well, that's just what we do as parents. Huh? This, this, has, this is so different from the person that I know. Where did this come from? And you may be even a person that completely rejects your parents' parenting, oh, they did it all wrong, and I'm going in this direction. And you might go in that direction, but you are still a product of that environment, and you still have to understand those dynamics. The second large takeaway today is this. You need to develop your communication muscles. A few years ago, I took a couple of my kids camping on the Columbia River Gorge, this beautiful campground had this horseshoe pit there and my kids were playing and there's a picture of my daughter Kira throwing the horseshoes and it was fun we had a great time now a couple years after my wife and I got married 
we had this really inter- interesting discussion. She told me about her friend that she worked with that was moving from Northern California to Southern California to study under this apprenticeship of this guy who is a horseshoer. Yeah, it's an amazing opportunity that he has to, to go on into this horseshoeing thing. And it pays big money. And my mouth is like a gape, like you are out of your mind. You're pulling my leg. No, seriously, there's a ton of money in it. Now, what I wasn't thinking was the fact that my wife grew up riding horses and that these things, these horses need to have replaced on their hooves are horseshoes. (laughs) So this young man was going to be apprenticed to replace these horseshoes, not this silly game, right? It took me a while. (laughs) I'm a little slow. But I had the best of intentions, and she had the best of intentions, and we got to this place of, what do we do in this situation? You are out of your mind. You see, when the two become one, it's two personalities that come into one relationship. It's two people with very different sets of life experiences that come into this relationship. And with those personalities come default styles of communication. Some of us like to blame. Some of us explode in conversations. Some of us like to acquiesce. Let's, let's just get rid of this conversation. I, I don't want any kind of attention whatsoever. Let's just sweep it under a rug. Some of us need time to process the conversation. And some of us are empathetic, and I want to know for the next five hours why blue is your favorite color. Tell me more. I love to have couples take a personality test, maybe it's an Enneagram test, so that they can look at the other person's test results and go, oh, okay, that sort of personality tends to say these things or to do these things. And it's really helpful to know, well, maybe they're not crazy. It's just the way that they're wired. You and I have to become good students of our spouse. We have to know what happened in elementary school, that traumatic event in middle school, and on and on and on, that continues to affect their decision-making today. I often hear the words, we just grew apart. That is a communication problem. You are not communicating with God, and you are not communicating with each other. So change is inevitable, right? Everybody is going to go through change. Sometimes there are positive changes in life, and sometimes there are negative changes in life. Maybe you got that promotion. Maybe you got that bump in salary. Or maybe you had a child who was seriously ill in the hospital that affected things. Those instances will affect each spouse a little bit differently. Each of us is going to spend time together and we're going to spend time apart. Unless, you know, you have one of these uh, home and garden television uh, careers where you spend 24-7 with this spouse where you are uh, the destructor of the items and the builder and she's the realtor or whatever combination therefore. Most of us will not work together with our spouse. And that's not necessarily a bad thing for some of us. Not me, honey. (laughs) 
But you need to spend time together and you need to spend time apart. It's what happens when you are apart that needs especially to be communicated. If she has something bad go down at work, if there is a boss that is predatory, if you have this amazing experience, like you play golf and I hit a hole in one for the first time in 45 years, you want to share these experiences. If you don't share those experiences, you're missing out. Then you start to grow apart. You have to spend time doing that. And you have to pay close attention as to how those events are affecting her or him. And disagreements in your relationship are absolutely inevitable. It's going to happen. Two people, best friends, spouses, will never agree on everything. Heck, you don't even agree with yourself sometimes, right? Why would you expect that two people would agree on everything? Conflict, for those of us that don't like conflict, is a good thing. Iron sharpens iron. We get better. Honesty, truth comes out in those scenarios. I have some green handouts that you can grab on one of the tabletops back at the end of the morning that have some very specific, um, specific to-dos and to-don'ts on cultivating great communication. Ephesians 4.26 says, Don't let the sun go down on your anger. What this is saying is you need to set time every single day to converse with your spouse. And when you have those conversations, body language is super important. Put this thing down. Turn it upside down. Turn the ringer off. Sit on the couch. Make eye contact. Don't stand or sit here like this. Uh Uh-huh. Be quick to listen, James 1 says. Not wait it out and prove your point, but listen. Want to know what he or she is saying. You might want to ask at the beginning, and guys, this is probably for us, do you want me to solve problems or do you just want me to listen? If you're like me, no, let's fix it right now. We have to make everything better by the end of this conversation. Ask clarifying questions. Okay, Time out, in the middle of the story, did you mean this? Did you say this? That tells them, yes, you are listening. And number two, it's going to increase what you take in. Use I feel statements. Don't accuse. Oh, yeah, well, you, uh uh-uh. Say, okay, when you say this, I feel what you're saying is this. That takes the sting out of it. Give that person the benefit of the doubt. That person married you. She bore your children. Right? They want this to work. Don't assume that you were enemies. Accept responsibility for the things that you do wrong. Apologize, apologize, apologize. Ask for forgiveness. Forgive. Don't say the word divorce. Don't hold it up here as a threat. But at the same time, don't think that it could never happen. So don't take advantage of your spouse because, oh, well, the Bible says don't get divorced, so I can do whatever I want. No. Give time to heal. So even if things have been forgiven and are over, there still may be some wounds that need to scar over. Like, 
Okay, I need a day or two to process. But earn back that trust every day. And most important, pray, pray, pray. Seek God's will together, not your will. Takeaway number three, Alan Jackson was wrong. You cannot live on love. You need money. You can't just live on love. You need money. The day that you get married, congratulations, you are now a corporation. Because once the romance, even if romance is still there, you still got to pay the bills. You have house payments, car payments, kids that take every last penny. So I've heard. You are now a corporation. Now, one thing that you need to know is that each of you brings into the marriage a certain financial expectation. One of you may have grown up dirt poor. One of you may have been born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You've got to come to a place where you're at the same level. And rare is a situation where somebody says, you know what? I want to live with a lot less than I had as a kid. It's usually, no, I want, to, I want the same standard of living or I want more. And those things have to be talked out. Our very first apartment that we lived in, we came back from our honeymoon. We were living in Sacramento. And my sweet wife made dinner for her husband. She was so excited. And turning on the oven a few minutes later, cockroaches. Lots of cockroaches scurrying out of this oven day after day after day. And this wonderful place that we found as a new married couple, this apartment that was ours that we saved so much money on, we decided the cockroaches weren't worth it and we're going to spend a little bit more money and our expectations were raised that day. What are you willing to live with? What are the variables that you're going to face? Both of you at the age of 25 may say, we are climbing that corporate ladder. We're going to have millions by the time we're 30. We're still going to have kids, but they're not going to get in the way of our progress, right? And then five years in, he says, man, I'd like to stay home with the kids. No, 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 no. That's not part of the deal. We talked about it. It was not in our vows. We change. What happens if one of you gets critically ill? What happens if one of you wants a second house or wants to go back to school? Or what if you both decide to become missionaries? That will significantly change your financial trajectory. But those are the things that happen in marriage. You need to get smart with your money. You need to pay your bills together, at least for a little while, so you can see how each other spends their money. A round of golf costs. What? Get financial help. Take a Dave Ramsey class. Read one of his books. There's others out there that can help you get out of debt. In my humble opinion, one bank account. One bank account. You don't want to divide that stuff. It's fine if you say, all right, Sheet, all right, we're each going to have some of our own fun money to spend on whatever we want. But the moment you divide things and say, oh, yeah, well, I took this in. It's mine. And you only took this in, so you only get that. Trouble. Trouble. 
Takeaway number four. Sex is God's gift to marriage. It is designed for marriage alone. And what happens when couples have sex way too early, that becomes the basis of your relationship. And you're not thinking logically. You're thinking about enjoying that time with him or her. And as time progresses, that's the basis of your relationship. And you begin to make compromises. And all of a sudden, I'm pregnant. Or all of a sudden, hey, we're headed down the aisle, but maybe we don't know each other as well as we thought. And you get in danger and find yourself maybe unequally yoked. Takeaway number five, stop maneuvering for power. Stop maneuvering for power. When you get married, your selfishness is exposed. I still remember week one, week two probably. I mean, when you're single and you're hungry, you want to go eat here. And then you get married, and it's like, oh, we have to decide together. Why wouldn't you want to go to Tommy Burger every Friday to get a double chili cheese, even if it stays with you for hours upon hours? What, what is this sushi thing? I, I, we can't do that. There can become a struggle, a struggle for power in your marriage. And men in the church love Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to this. Wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body the church. And whether you're an egalitarian or a complementarian in marriage, the problem can become that there is a hierarchy of importance. And so, because I am a man, that means now I get to make all the decisions. I am the center of the family, and everybody revolves around me. And the danger is that it becomes a parent-child relationship. Or even worse, an owner-dog relationship. Well, of course my, I love my wife. She goes and gets my beer like my dog. That's the danger of taking that too far. Now, one of the things that we tend to forget is Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I like that one about Eve being Adam's helper. That's a good one. Of course, Psalm 118 and Hebrews 13 say that God is our helper, so I guess that's not what it means. And then we completely love to ignore men, Philippians 2, 5 to 7, that says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not e consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Oh, man. Stop your quest for power. Stop your quest for power. It has no place in marriage. The best thing to do with power is to let go of it. Release it. Or leverage it for those in your marriage and in your family that need it most. Men. Specifically, whether you're egalitarian or complementarian, I don't care. 
set the example. You lead by example. You pray with your spouse. You pray with your kids. You pray for your spouse. You pray for your kids. Make dinner. Fold the laundry. Do the dishes. There are no his and hers appropriate specific tasks. Now, some of you may be thinking, boy, he's talking to me. Why does he say that? Did my, did my wife email you this week? The answer is yes. <laughs> he did. He took several notes, and this is for you specifically. Get off the couch and... No, no, no. All right. In your marriage, if the struggle is real, if, if it's a game, if it's a tug of war, it's time let go of the rope. Don't even play that game. And you may, you need to be in a, or you're in a situation where you need accountability. What you need to do is you need to find a neutral party, uh, maybe two different couples. Both couples that love both of you. Not the one girlfriend who hates your husband's guts. And not the family either. Because families, as amazing as they are, will still side with one or the other. Find people that love both of you and that are going to help you make decisions that are the best or with best intentions for both of you. That after that conversation you have, guys, with your guy friend, you will not be embarrassed in the presence of your wife when the four of you are together talking. You may need to talk to a pastor. You may need to go to a therapist, and that is a good thing. If you have a problem with making decisions in your household, very often you'll hear, well, I make the decisions because I'm a man. Are those benefiting the family? Have you sat and wait for the Lord? Have you honestly prayed with him for a while? How about this? Instead of making a decision, let's not make a decision until God speaks to both of us. And then there may be a time where one of you may need to say, you know what, I really think we need to. This is not a power issue. A, wedding, a verse that I often use in weddings is Ecclesiastes 4, where it talks about a cord of three strands not quickly being broken. When the, ma- when the man and the wife and God intertwine like that three-stranded cord, it is tough to break that apart. We need to depend on God in our marriage. And a perfect marriage reflects the sacred relationship between God and humanity. All relationships, quite frankly. And this, as Jesus said, will lead to life to the full. And love, true love, will follow you forever. I'm going to invite the band up. I'm going to pray with you for you this morning. This may be a hard week for you. (laughs) Something may have come up this morning, maybe a few things that are going to affect you, but I want to encourage you to dig in. Let's pray. For those this morning who are married, God, I pray incredible blessings over their lives. I pray great conversations, even hard conversations this very week, that will restore things. Jesus, I pray for 
the courage to confess, to ask forgiveness, the courage to say, yes, I do forgive you. I pray for fantastic marriages. I pray for a marriage that includes the joy that was there once upon a time, that that would return. That person that I met so many years ago. For those who are here this morning and are not married, God, those who have been broken, those who have been devastated by loss, God, comfort them. Comfort them in your peace. And ultimately, God, this is a relationship, marriage that pales in comparison to the deep love and intimacy that we have with you. Bring comfort to them this morning. I encourage everybody this morning to go to one of the four communion tables. To communion with God in those spaces where he will remind you of his deep love and sacrifice he made for you. I would encourage you even right now, if one of you, if, if you're a couple that needs prayer, go to the back right now and ask to be prayed for. Jesus, we come to you and we thank you that you've designed us for relationship and that you pursue us. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.